Welcome to Women and Sustainability, the podcast where we speak with some of the world's foremost female professionals from across the sustainability field. With me, your host, Emily Fripp. This month, I have the pleasure of speaking to Julianne Quallette Noble, who has been the Managing Director of the Sustainable Restaurants Association since January 2021. I'll let Julianne tell you more in a moment, but with a background in nutrition and a love of good food, Julianne is deeply engaged in global food policy issues ranging from sustainable farming and urban growing, food education and food systems for schools. Her career has been a fascinating combination of exploring the systems that influence both how we eat and also how we learn about what we eat. Listeners in the UK may be familiar with Julianne's work running Jamie Oliver's programme for improving school food and food education across the UK. And more recently, she's been helping the food service and restaurant sector to strengthen engagement in issues of sustainability. In these currently very challenging times, I'm honoured that Julianne has kindly given up her time this morning to have a chat with us. Um, Welcome, Julianne, to Women's Sustainability Podcast. Julianne, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. And, and, you know, you're clearly hugely passionate about food and, and about education. And I can see that through your career, you've, you've worked in both and you're culminating both now in the role you're playing. Um, educating young people through your work with Jamie Oliver, which some people will know about, um, and school dinners, which obviously we all watch that with, with keen <laughs> interest. Um, and now you're sort of busy as the managing director or the, the managing director of Sustainable Restaurant Association. Um, two years, so happy birthday. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I would notice. I thought, well, this is a nice way to celebrate. Um, yeah. Definitely not the easiest of two years, though. So um, that was a bit of a welcome with a bang, I'd have thought. So very keen to hear how you how that's all going. But yeah. I, 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 it's one of the things that I um, talk about often when I kind of slide in there that I took this role on in January of 2021 and um, kind of right when it felt like the restaurant industry was dead and dying. Um, so, yeah, really keen to, to, to talk about how the last two years have gone and feels like, um, you know, I think as many people feel about COVID, feels like the longest and shortest years of of your life so it all feels like a weird time warp it, it's a very strange one isn't it it's like you look back and think did it happen but at yeah. the time it never stopped um, exactly so I mean the SRA I mean there's sort of some people will know what it is others won't so it'd be good to sort of hear from you what what that actually means what it's involved in I mean we know from our work we do with with you guys that um, it's a range of companies, there's large, there's small, there's independent restaurants, there's some big manufacturers in there, some that everybody will know and some that probably we've never heard of. Um, but you're sort of working with them and you also work with campaign groups um, and you're involved in policy and support at government level. Um, it's a big role, I imagine. And um, I'm, I mean, as I say, it's a huge pleasure that you can join us this morning and take some time out to to talk to us. So Tell us a little bit about the SRA then and how's it working and, and what's your sort of role within that group, within the sort of sustainability space? Yeah, it, all, all good questions. So the SRA stands for the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Um, 
I think there's also like a solicitor's <laughs> regulatory authority or something like that that is the SRA. So occasionally you get weird, um, weird messages trying to reach a solicitor. Um, but for clarity, we are talking about the Sustainable Restaurant Association on this podcast. And the Sustainable Restaurant Association uh, has been around in London for uh, about 12 years. 13 years now and we were founded by uh, Henry Dimbleby and Mark Sainsbury and then two sustainability consultants uh, Giles Gibbons and Simon Hepner and um, for those listening to this podcast they probably know who Henry Dimbleby is um, but in case they don't founder of Leon and then obviously went on to write the school food plan and went on to write most recently the national food strategy. Um, so if you can if you can kind of rewind your mind back 15 years or so, the conversation between these these kind of four men was around how um, you know sustainability, this buzzword about sustainability and the rise of kind of uh, the conscious consumer and the idea that, people's uh people were caring more than ever about the food choices that they're making you're seeing massive growth in organic sales in supermarkets you're seeing pushes around labeling um you know these kind of infant days of of label clean labels and um sustainability markers in supermarkets you're also kind of in the golden era of csr corporate social responsibility when it comes to um bigger businesses and brands and yet the the conversation was about how restaurants are this really interesting space where they're hugely impactful sector, um, not just because of the actual resources that restaurants use, but also because of the role that restaurants play in influencing human behaviors and cultural behaviors and and kind of changing how we think about um, about culture. And yet restaurants are sort of the wild, we're sort of the wild west when it comes to understanding sustainability, because um, I mean, and, you know, it's getting better. But even still, I would say people, uh, consumers get w- the information that they kind of want or need about the sustainability efforts of a restaurant often based on vibes. And so they they kind of um, feel that, you know, this re- the price point of this restaurant is this or the marketing of this restaurant is this. And therefore, that must mean that the quality of produce that they're serving is this or that their practices, of course, they must be paying their staff well or they, you know, these sorts of things. And there was really no kind of... Um, coherent framework for restaurants to use to assess how they were thinking about sustainability. And so um, the SRA was born and we were born as a membership organization and we started with 50 founding member restaurants and and then working with others in uh, the field you guys will know because of the work that we've you know done on on things like palm oil and soya and getting your expert opinions um, we work quite a lot with experts in the field to digest and say what are, you know how do these issues affect restaurants and is this the right way of asking restaurants about their role in this um, in this field so our our kind of initial founding was about creating a framework that um, addressed sustainability in a way that restaurants could understand, um, that, that, that touched on 
the issues. Now that framework has kind of evolved over time and our question set that that backs up that framework has very much evolved over time as our thinking about sustainability has become a lot more sophisticated um, across the industry. But uh, we, so we have, we have this framework that is, that is divided into three key areas. We talk about the sourcing. So this is all the food that restaurants buy. Um, primarily, these are food businesses. And uh, so this is, this is kind of, you know, 80 to 95% of a restaurant's emissions impact is going to come from the sourcing and the food that they're purchasing and those scope three emissions. And so the food and the sourcing is really important. And then you've got the environmental impact of the restaurant. And with that, in, in, in kind of our framework, when we say environmental impact, we're now talking about the operations of the restaurant. We're talking about your energy use, your water, your waste, your um, fit out of your building, et cetera. And then we talk about the social impact of a restaurant and which, you know, quite often gets overlooked in sustainability discussions, but is incredibly important. And that we mean how restaurants treat their own um, people, their own community. Um, employment is a really important piece of, of um, running good businesses in, in restaurants. Um, it's also fundamental to having a sustainable restaurant sector, as in a restaurant sector that is able to sustain and, um, and continue and move forward. Um, and then we also talk about the impact that restaurants have on the wider community. So their influencing impact, the way that restaurants engage with uh, whether that's, uh, you know, charitable giving or whether that's engaging with local schools um, and and kind of engaging with their the wider communities that they're part of. So that's the SRA. Because listening to how, how you describe it and talk and, and looking back at your career and where you've come from and, and being very education focused, um, yeah. children, yeah. youth, and now you're with businesses and you know, your four founding men, that, that does, does make me laugh yeah. slightly. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, do you, you sort of, and, and increasingly now, you know, involved in more policy, whether it's for schools and education or whether it's now with the sort of catering and the hospitality sector, how, how has sort of progression happened? And, you know, how have you gone from that education space into being, you know, the managing director of a, of a, of a restaurant organization and and like you say typically probably quite male in some of its domination in in sort of those owners very much so very much so and um and I think it's a really good question and and sometimes one where you look back on your own career and kind of look at how did I get here and what am I doing um but uh you know so as you say my my background very much was education focused. Um, my my degree was in education and not in food. Um, and you know I've got a subsequent degree in nutrition, but um, but I very much came to the food world because of the education impacts of it. And actually, that I, I thought I was going to be a teacher um, my whole life, and um, and you know that that was kind of where I thought. Uh, you know, besides fantasies of like being a writer and stuff like that, I thought I was going to be a teacher. And um, and I was in a class towards the end of my undergraduate degree. I was in an urban education uh, class. And um, as you can tell, I'm, I'm from the U.S. Um, the state of urban education in the U.S. is uh, is 
tragic, I would be, you know, maybe but best word to describe it. And I and I remember, um, you know, talking about all this kind of the intersectionality of all these issues that affect the education system. And I just couldn't get over the idea that like how that how do we expect children to learn um, that are hungry and like that it's such a fundamental piece of being able and having the capacity for learning um, that I just don't understand you know, all the rest of it is superfluous if you can't do the fundamentals, which is feeding children. Um, and then beyond just the fundamental of feeding children, if you can't feed children well, and if you can't feed children, um, you know, in a way that that kind of nourishes their um, their, their mind and, and gets them ready for learning, and also how then essential food is to everything else in our lives to um, to bringing people together. Food has such a role to play in the kind of cultural capital that you have in in your life and, and therefore then the kind of social capital and the ability to move in different, you know, to, to move in different social spaces is often tied to the references that you have around food. And um, so all of that became really fascinating to me and, and then probably no surprise that um, that Jamie and his campaigning was really fascinating to me um, because I thought, here's someone who, um, and I also kind of was sick of the idea that like we should come at food policy from the perspective of a nutritionist. And often in the US, when you talk then about health and children and stuff, you start talking about like food pyramids and, um, and macronutrients. And one of my favorite kind of citations is talking about if knowing about nutrition was going to solve the obesity epidemic, um, the U.S. would be the healthiest country in the world because there is the most um, information about macronutrients, the most information about nutrition in air quotes, I realize this <laughs> podcast, nobody can see that, um, nutrition being taught to, to in, in American schools. And yet nutrition isn't going to save us. Food will save us. And so I was really drawn to kind of Jamie coming at it from the perspective of a chef and somebody who loves food. And this was really about imparting to children a love of good food, which then will nourish and sustain them. So that was my draw to Jamie. Um, so I, mo I moved to London uh, and people were looking at me like I said I had moved to D.C. <laughs> to work for Obama or something. And like, do you know, Jamie? How are you? What What are you talking about? And I was like, no, I don't know, Jamie. But I um, and I just realized I'm probably going to talk your ear off to tell you the whole story. But the, the kind of short of it is that I ended up volunteering at Jamie's first ever festival on Clapham Common. Um, and, uh, and it just so happened that the person who was kind of working with Jamie on schools, um, didn't show up and she was meant to, and they were, they had this whole kitchen garden set up and they were doing these sessions for kids. And I think she had been caught in traffic or something. I don't know. Um, and didn't make it and they needed somebody to run these sessions for kids. And I was volunteering in the area and I was kind of like, <laughs> uh, I'll do it. And, um, and I got mic'd up and did all these things. And, and then Jamie comes to the kitchen garden and he's like, who is this American girl <laughs> that doesn't work for me <laughs> that is doing these lessons? Um, and, uh, you know, it was a three-day festival by, by the kind of Sunday. 
Um, somebody from Jamie's team says, there's all these emails going around the office saying, does anybody know who the American girl is? And, you know, can you bring your CV in with you so we can take it back to the office? Um, fast forward another week or two and I get a phone call from, from Louise Holland, who's Jamie's deputy, saying that, you know, this is Louise Holland calling on behalf of Jamie and will you come in to, to kind of meet us? Um, and such started my journey working for Jamie and, and schools. And, um, and then, you know, it's an, it's a, it's a tough world out there when it comes to kind of school food and policy and kind of beyond Jamie, then you're looking at, um, you know, there's some amazing work happening with charities. And when I left working for, for Jamie and came to the SRA, it was before the days of chefs in schools, which they're doing absolutely amazing, brilliant work. Um, I had met Nicole right as I was in that transition of leaving Jamie's. Nicole was in the kitchen at Gayhurst Primary in Hackney. Um, and so we kind of had met in that context. But I sort of looked around at the landscape and didn't know where else to go um, in that in that sort of space. And um, and then started having these conversations. Obviously, there was some overlap in the fact that Henry had written the school food plan. And so I had worked quite closely with Henry um, on it in school food plan things. Um, and so kind of got an intro to Giles and and then was just quite interested in, it, you know, at that point, the SRA had been around for about six years. And this really interesting concept about how do you um, bring restaurants together under a framework of sustainability? How do you assess restaurants on, on sustainability? And how do you further their, you know, these issues in, in a different environment, in a more commercial environment? And, um, and, but it wasn't quite working. And in the sense that, you know, the organization was kind of not making money, you know, not, not really funding itself. And we kind of just hadn't really figured out how to nail it. Um, and so I kind of came in with a bit of a blurry remit on, you know, relooking at this and, um, uh, and looking at kind of partnerships and, and campaigning and how could the organization be campaigning, um, and, and we sort of stumbled along and, and it was sort of a problem, a, a puzzle to unpick a little bit. And, and that's how I ended up at the SRA. And then, you know, fast forward to, um, to COVID and how do you, if you're a membership organization that takes money from restaurants and all of a sudden restaurants stop, you know, as membership dues, um, it, which was how we couched it all. All of our tools and things were free parts of, being a member of the SRA, yet um, a that didn't really do justice to the work that we were doing because we didn't really value the the sustainability work we were doing it was sort of the membership stuff was the was the value, um, and then all of a sudden restaurants stop operating and you stop getting membership fees from restaurants and you start rethinking um, not just okay we're, how do we make it through these through this period the first you know first originally thinking it's going to be three months and then it's going to be six months and then it's going to be a year. Um, and how do you make it through? But then starting to think, well, when the world reopens again, is membership relevant? Like that's not the first thing that restaurants are going to rush back to, to say, I need to start paying to be a part of a member of something again. And yet the 
the conversation around sustainability was becoming increasingly relevant. And um, and the issues around sustainability and COVID really brought quite a lot of them to the forefront. And, and then there was also an energy around the closures of restaurants in COVID where it was like, if not now, you know, now's the time to sort of become a better business when we reopen. Um, so I took over the MD role as, you know, this is all bringing us back to the start of this conversation, but I took over the MD role in January, 2021. And if I'm honest, I think we were at a point where it was like, you know, questionable whether we would make payroll in March and, um, and kind of what the plan or strategy was for that. Our team had dropped down from 17 to um, to six, and um, and then at our lowest we were four. Um, in some ways, uh, I I might have, you know, this. I don't want to not. I don't want to do a disservice to kind of uh, my directors and stuff, but it also it sort of maybe was a cleanup job that like if I took over and then we might need it, you know, we we needed to close the organization. Um, and I viewed that as an opportunity to sort of rethink how we did things and, and who we were going to be as an organization when this reopened, how we were going to change. Um, and, and the first thing that we, that we discussed and talked about, um, was this idea of the value of the framework and the audit that we, and the service that we kind of provide for restaurants, um, is so much more valuable than the, than the idea of being a member of an organization. Um, so we shifted our framing and we, we went back to the to restaurants and said, um, we're no longer a membership organization. We, what you are going to pay for is the certification for the, is the audit, the framework, getting your, getting your stars. And everybody came back and said, oh yeah, that makes sense. We'll do that because we need an action plan. And, you know, what you're paying for is is a baseline assessment of where you are and the action plan of where you go from here. And it was the perfect moment for that because everybody was like, we need to open better than we've been performing. We need to understand how we've been performing because nobody, you know, so much has changed because of COVID. And, um, and all of a sudden that was actually a really meaningful proposition I think and, to the market and if I can um, I, I can ask because yeah. the what I find really interesting with the work we do with um companies and stuff is you know you go along and go okay we've got to talk about palm oil and you're going to be sustainable palm oil or sustainable soya and they're like oh that's bad isn't it and you go yeah but do you know where it comes from and when you use it and how you use it and everything and it turns much more into education information awareness raising um, do you know what the issue is? Do you know where it comes from? So it's it, it, you sort of start with this top level policy of, OK, you've got to have a policy, you've got to get certified, you've got to do all these big, scary things, got to be audited. But actually, most of the conversation is around, do you actually know what those commodities are, what the impacts are, where it comes from, how you can manage that? And and I think coupled with that, you've got the, the sort of COVID crisis, the, cash, the cost of living crisis we're in now for everybody as a household, individual, business, whoever you are. And and I can really see that that, would, that that knowledge resonates with school dinners. And the big topic that Jamie always battled with was, was hang on, we've got a tiny amount of pence per, per pupil to, to feed them well. 
And do you find all of this is sort of coming together in, in the sort of narrative, that sort of education and awareness? And I know you do things like deforestation plates and things. And Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, you know, exactly that. And I think you're know, looking back on, on, on my career and, and, you know, your skill sets or whatever that you bring to a career. And I think at the end of the day, the coherent theme here is being able to sort of take these big issues and complex issues and break them down so that they're simple and approachable and meaningful. And so with school dinners and things, these big issues like um, hunger and food scarcity and food justice and all this sort of stuff and, um, and breaking that down into you know, the Kitchen Garden Project was about kids growing and cooking at school and changing the way that kids thought about food because of their interaction, their actual interactions with food um, and the impact that has. And it and it takes complexity and, and, and systems problems and breaks it down to being a really tangible, actionable, meaningful thing. Um, and it's the same work with restaurants, sustainability, all of these buzzwords, you know, we can... Um, we can sit and kind of uh, talk jargon and and all these words. And I think you were saying the same thing, you know, with palm oil, with with um, sustainable roundtables and certifications and policies and um, you know human rights audits and all of this sort of stuff that that uh, feels really overwhelming to to restaurants. And what we try to do, and the goal of our audit is really to break it into um, kind of human language that somebody that you don't need a sustainability consultant to interpret, um, that it can be interpreted by people that work in restaurants. And another big lesson that I learned from working for, for Jamie is, you know, and Jamie's so uh, brilliant because he's so open about, you know, his education, his dyslexia, his leaving school without GS GCSEs, and then kind of going on to being the best-selling nonfiction author in the UK outside of the Bible or whatever it is that Jamie is. And um, he, and, uh, but what I learned about, uh, you know, how, how Jamie works is like you go in meetings with Jamie and he's standing and he's fidgeting, you know, he's drawing in his notebook or whatever and he's tapping his fingers and, um, and I, that's chefs, that's chefs full stop. And, and rest, you know, people that we work with on a day to day basis in restaurants are pe people choose to work in restaurants because they didn't like sitting in front of a computer because they didn't, they weren't hugely academic people. Um, they might have left school at a certain point, obviously not all people in restaurants are, you know, but, um, but it's really important to be able to take these like heady intellectual concepts about food systems interactions and stuff and have them make sense to somebody that's not interested in sitting in front of a computer and following a whole bunch of links to read you know white papers that have been written and and, and we find that you know that the easy option tends to be for somebody to say well I, I just won't buy it you know that that's the way out and it's kind of then saying actually there are other ways um that you can do this but most of the time it's kind of use a bit less, waste a bit less. Um, 
think about it, talk to your suppliers. They're quite practical. You don't have to ban. You don't have to be radically the other side and get everything completely squeaky clean and certified either. It's it's having that middle ground and taking it in step-by-step approaches is, is kind of how we've found the most approachable way to get some of these businesses on board. And I think that, that sometimes... Um that sometimes can be uh, hard to to learn and understand. I think a lot of people that, you know, we're talking about women in food uh, and in sustainability careers. And I think a lot of people that come into jobs like this or that come in wanting to change the food system, come in maybe with a really purist view. Um, I definitely did about school food. I definitely remember walking into a school that was being shown to me as an example of good practice, thinking like, this is not an example of good practice. And, um, and it was a learning curve to be like, to, to recognize, no, it was. Food was being made um, from scratch in their kitchen. So it wasn't like the Alice Waters edible schoolyard viewpoint, you know, hip, hip kind of viewpoint that I had. And, um, and I think the same, the same with restaurants. I, you know, we, people ask us all the time, we work with, um, large high street chains. Um, you mentioned at the beginning. So yes, small single site independence. Yes. Fine dining, um, Michelin starred restaurants. Um, yes, the kind of best of the best when you would think about who is a sustainable restaurant in the UK. We also work with large high street chains and some of them are doing a really amazing, thorough, hard work to unpick some of the, you know, complexities of how their businesses have been built over the last 30 years. And, um, and I think we have to, you have to come at it about, um, progress, not perfection around the scale of the impact that you can have. You know, if I only, if you only want to work with, um, the vegan and organic and, um, regenerative restaurants, you know, I could, we, we could work with 10, um, or something and then, and the impact of that, and they're maybe working with the same five farms and stuff. And so actually being able to be broader and looking at the idea that, yeah, it's progress, not perfection. And how do we move things forward? How do we not be turned off by the fact that, you know, maybe our, our careers and the work that we're doing doesn't look as pure as our idealistic, you know, 22 year old self might've thought going into change the food system um but I stood up at a at a conference a few this is pre-covid so a few years ago now in um in Milan in so probably 2018 um with uh the Barilla Center for Food and Nutrition who used to bring together this amazing conference um in in Milan every year and um they we were speaking about some of the work that we do with restaurants and giving some examples and a student that was in the audience kind of stood up and was like, um, if you're not pushing everybody to be vegan, uh, then, you know, and, and plant-based, then it's useless because, um, you know, what our, what the planet requires is that we need to cut our meat consumption. And if you're not being realistic about that, then you're, then you're not being realistic. And it was really interesting because one of the um, advisors that we've been working with at the Brillo Center for Food and Nutrition is on the IPCC. He, write, he, he is a climate scientist. He sits on the IPCC and he stood up and he said, it's fundamentally 
misunderstanding to think um, to not being to not be willing to look at progress over perfection. What we need is the whole world to look at, you know, or particularly the whole Western world to look at cutting their meat consumption, um, not a hundred people to go vegan. And you know, and and, and if in if the way that we are going to get there to a world in which everybody is a bit more flexitarian, is by being less dogmatic about the idea that unless you're vegan you are not doing the right thing for the planet and um that's controversial and there's definitely vegan restaurants out there that look at what we do and say how can you say a meat restaurant is part of what you do but and there's a, there's a vegan restaurant and then there's a steakhouse around the corner and and it will balance itself out and i think we we agree when we talk about our commodities it's very much if we all consume a little bit less um, that will probably have just as big an impact as if we try and make 10% of the population vegan or, or elsewise. And, you know, maybe we all just don't go for seconds all the time or throw as an alarming figure of how much we throw away. Oh, huge. Um, which is sort of 40% of what we produce or around that. And you kind of think there are a few seemingly easy wins here. We don't all have to become vegan or, vegan or, or, or giving. It's not about giving up anything I don't think and I think that's really important I'm I'm conscious of time and I, you're a very busy woman and it, I could sit and talk for ages so is it, it what's your what's your advice to other women or, or young girls and ladies sort of coming up in this you know with an, a dream with an ambition I mean you listen to you it's like just go for it get on a plane and get on with it is I mean definitely that and I think I think some of that is you know you can kind of get away with a, a. I find in this country, there's a little bit of like being the plucky American that like people kind of go, oh yeah, well you're American and like you've got that. But I think everybody needs a little bit of that in your career, um, and you know to kind of if you're passionate about something. And I think the other key thing was, um, you know, it's not just you know get on a get on a plane and and try to work for Jamie, but it, it's that kind of volunteering at, at a festival that, that they were doing or having conversations, find ways, have coffees with people um, that whose careers you are interested in or um, and you would be amazed at, you know, the amount of people that are absolutely willing to have those conversations. I remember chatting about that with an intern that um, that worked for me at, at Jamie's and she wasn't quite sure where she wanted her career to go. And she started just sending emails based or, or kind of LinkedIn messages um, and had coffee with Tommy Myers and had coffee with, you know, all these people that because you kind of put yourself out there and say, hey, I'm interested in this. And um, that shows a certain amount of fortitude for um, a young person and particularly a young woman when you then or reaching out to other young to other women in the in the field. Um, the other big thing is kind of know your your worth compared to like we as women. There's that stat about how women apply for jobs only once they're hundred percent qualified for the job, and men on average apply for jobs when they're sixty percent qualified for the job. And it is so. Um, and, and then to just figure, I'll learn the rest. And women, we need we need a little bit more of that in ourselves too. Um, and, you know, sit back, take a deep breath and think what would a middle-aged white man do and, um, and, and kind of go for that because we need more, um, we need more of that out there. We need to know 
our worth a bit more and be willing to, um, and that comes to for pay conversations as well in the field. And I think that's a really important thing to talk about as women working. Um, I employ a mostly female team and having really open conversations about pay with my team and and um, and kind of helping that, you know, being able to be proactive about it so that helping them feel more confident in conversations about pay, I think is a really important thing in our field, um, particularly in sustainability jobs. This is a skill set that is being increasingly valued um, all over the place. You know, um, I was reading a, uh, the, a 2020 report around um, pay across the sustainab- sustainability jobs that Acre puts together. And um, sustainability jobs jumped 20% in, in pay between 2018 and 2020. I would expect you would see the same, another 20% jump between 2020 and 2022. Um, and unless you kind of see that and recognize that, then you get trapped in a cycle of not, you know, asking for more and, and, and kind of knowing your value. Um, so I think that's really important. I also think, you know, know what your skill set and your story and your, what is it that you, not just your passion and your, um, desire to know about sustainability or food systems, but like, what is it that you bring to the table? And so when we were talking about that narrative, though it's weird and winding about education and whatnot, my my kind of what I bring to the table is that ability to take complex things and make them simple and make them relatable. And, you know, other people have other skill sets that are technical or that are, um, you know, visionary, you know, that are, uh, I don't know, all the different things that we need in in sustainability jobs and so know which part of it is the thing that turns you on do you like being in front of people do you like being behind a computer screen do you like and I think the more you get in tune with that the more you'll find that you're you're drawn to roles that actually suit you a huge thank you to Julianne and thank you for listening If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and we hope you can join us soon for another episode. Episodes come out on the 8th of every month.